Section 15 of Lynn McLean by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 Destiny at Drybone. Part 3, Section 1. Today, Drybone has altogether returned to the dust. Even in that day, its hour could have been heard beginning to sound, but its inhabitants were rather deaf. Gamblers, saloon-keepers, murderers, outlaws, male and female, all were so busy with their cards, their lovers, and their bottles as to make the place seem young and vigorous. But it was second childhood which had set in. Drybone had known a wholesome, adventurous youth, where manly lives and deaths were plenty. It had been an army post. It had seen horse and foot and heard the trumpet. Brave wives had kept house for their captains upon its bluffs. Winter and summer they had made the best of it. When the War Department ordered the captains to catch Indians, the wives bade them Godspeed. When the Interior Department ordered the captains to let the Indians go again, still they made the best of it. You must not waste Indians. Indians were a source of revenue to so many people in Washington and elsewhere. But the process of catching Indians, armed with weapons sold them by friends of the Interior Department, was not entirely harmless. Therefore there came to be graves in the Drybone graveyard. The pale, weather-washed headboards told all about it. Sacred to the memory of Private So-and-So, killed on the Dry Cheyenne, May 6, 1875. Or it would be Mrs. So-and-So, found scalped on Sage Creek. But even the financiers at Washington could not wholly preserve the Indian in Drybone's neighborhood. As the cattle by ten thousands came treading with the next step of civilization into this huge domain, the soldiers were taken away. Some of them went west to fight more Indians in Idaho, Oregon, or Arizona. The battles of the others being done, they went east in better coffins to sleep where their mothers or their comrades wanted them. Though wind and rain wrought changes upon the hill, the ready-made graves and boxes which these soldiers left behind proved heirlooms as serviceable in their way as were the tenements that the living had bequeathed to Drybone. Into these empty barracks came to dwell and do business every joy that made the cowpunchers holiday, and every hunted person who was baffling the sheriff. For the sheriff must stop outside the line of Drybone, as shall presently be made clear. The captain's quarters were a saloon now. Professional cards were going in the adjutant's office night and day, and the commissary building made a good dance-hall and hotel. Instead of guard-mounting, you would see a horse-race on the parade-ground, and there was no provost-sergeant to gather up the broken bottles and old boots. Heaps of these choked the rusty fountain. In the tufts of yellow ragged grass that dotted the place plentifully were lodged many aces and queens and ten-spots, which the dry-bone wind had blown wide from the doors out of which they had been thrown when a new pack was called for inside. Among the grass-tufts would lie visitors who had applied for beds too late at the dance-hall, 
frankly sleeping their whiskey off in the morning air. Above, on the hill, the graveyard quietly chronicled this new epoch of Drybone. So-and-so was seldom killed very far out of town, and, of course, scalping had disappeared. Sacred to the memory of four Ace Johnson, accidentally shot, September 4, 1885. Perhaps one is still there unaltered. Sacred to the memory of Mrs. Ryan's babe, aged two months. This unique corpse had succeeded in dying with its boots off. But a succession of graves was not always needed to read the changing tale of the place, and how people died there. One grave would often be enough. The soldiers, of course, had kept treeless dry bones supplied with wood, but in these latter days wood was very scarce. None grew nearer than twenty or thirty miles, none, that is, to make boards of a sufficient width for epitaphs, and twenty miles was naturally far to go to hew a board for a man of whom you knew perhaps nothing but what he said his name was, and to whom you owed nothing, perhaps, but a trifling poker debt. Hence it came to pass that headboards grew into a sort of directory. They were light to lift from one place to another. A single coat of white paint would wipe out the first tenant's name sufficiently to paint over it the next comer's. By this thrifty habit the original boards belonging to the soldiers could go round, keeping pace with the new civilian population. And though at first sight you might be puzzled by the layers of names still visible beneath the white paint, you could be sure that the clearest and blackest was the one to which the present tenant had answered. So there on the hill lay the graveyard, steadily writing Drybone's history, and making that history lay the town at the bottom, one thin line of houses framing three sides of the old parade-ground. In these slowly rotting shells people rioted, believing the golden age was here, the age when everybody should have money and nobody should be arrested. For dry-bone soil, you see, was still government soil, not yet handed over to Wyoming, and only government could arrest there, and only for government crimes. But government had gone, and seldom worried Drybone. The spot was a postage stamp of sanctuary pasted in the middle of Wyoming's big map, a paradise for the four Ace Johnstons. Only you must not steal a horse. That was really wicked, and brought you instantly to the notice of Drybone's one official, the coroner. For they did keep a coroner, Judge Slaghammer. He was perfectly illegal and lived next door in Albany County but that county paid fees and mileage to keep tally of Drybone's casualties. His wife owned the dance-hall, and between their industries they made out a living. And all the citizens made out a living. The happy cowpunchers on ranches far and near still earned and instantly spent the high wages still paid them. With their bodies full of youth and their pockets full of gold, they rode into town by twenties, by fifties, and out again next morning, penniless, always, and happy. 
and then the four ace johnstons would sit card-playing with each other till the innocents should come to town again to-night the innocents had certainly come to town and drybone was furnishing to them all its joys their many horses stood tied at every post and corner patient experienced cow-ponies well knowing it was an all-night affair the talks and laughter of the riders was in the saloons they leaned joking over the bars they sat behind their cards at the tables they strolled to the post-traders to buy presents for their easy sweethearts their boots were keeping audible time with the fiddle at mrs slaghammer's from the multitude and vigor of the sounds there the dance was being done regularly regularly meant that upon the conclusion of each set the gentleman led his lady to the bar and invited her to choose and it was also regular that the lady should choose beer and whiskey were the alternatives lynn mclean's horse took him across the square without guiding from the cowpuncher who sat absently with his hands folded upon the horn of his saddle this horse too was patient and experienced and could not know what remote thoughts filled his master's mind he looked around to see why his master did not get off lightly as he had done during so many gallant years and hasten in to the conviviality but the lonely cowpuncher sat mechanically identifying the horses of acquaintances toothpick kid is here said he and limber jim and the doughy you'd think he'd stay away after the trouble he uh, i expect that pinto is jerky bills go home said a hearty voice mclean eagerly turned for the moment his face lighted from its somberness i'd forgot you'd be here said he and he sprang to the ground it's fine to see you go home repeated the governor of wyoming shaking his ancient friend's hand you in drybone to-night and claim you're reformed you seem to be on hand yourself said the cowpuncher bracing to be jocular if he could me i've gone fishing don't you read the papers if we poor governors can't lock up the state house and take a whirl now and then doc interrupted lynn it's plumb fine to see ya again he shook hands why yes we've met here before you and i his excellency the honorable amory w barker m d stood laughing familiar and genial his sound white teeth shining but behind his round spectacles he scrutinized mclean for in this second-hand shaking was a fervor that seemed a grasp a reaching out for comfort barker had passed through separ though an older acquaintance than billy he had asked jessamine fewer and different questions but he knew what he knew well drybone's the same old drybone said he sweet-scented hole of iniquity let's see how you walk nowadays lynn took a few steps pooh i said you'd never get over it and his excellency beamed with professional pride in his doctor days barber had set the boy mclean's leg and before it was properly knit the boy had escaped from the hospital to revel loose in drybone on such another night as this 
Soon he had been carried back, with the fracture split open again. "'It shows, does it?' said Lynn. "'Well, it don't usually. Not except when I'm—when I'm—down,' suggested His Excellency. "'Yes, Doc, down,' the cowpuncher confessed. Barker looked into his friend's clear hazel eyes. Beneath their dauntless sparkle was something that touched the governor's good heart. "'I've got some whiskey along on the trip—eastern whiskey,' said he. "'Come over to my room a while.' "'I used to sleep all night once,' said McLean as they went. "'Then I come to know different. But I'd never have believed just mere thoughts would make you—make you feel like the steam was only half on. "'I eat, you know,' he stated suddenly, "'and I expect one or two in camp lately have not found my muscle lacking. Feel me, Doc.' Barker dutifully obeyed, and praised the excellent sinews. Across from the dance-hall the whining of the fiddle came, high and gay. Feet blurred the talk of voices, and voices rose above the trampling of feet. Here and there some lurking form stumbled through the dark among the rubbish, and, clearest sound of all, the light crack of billiard-balls reached dry and far into the night. Barker contemplated the stars and calm, splendid dimness of the plain. "'Though every prospect pleases, and only man is vile,' he quoted. "'But don't tell the Republican Party I said so.' "'It's awful true, though, Doc. I'm vile myself. You don't know. Why, I didn't know.' And then they sat down to confidences and whiskey for so long as the world goes round, a man must talk to a man sometimes, and both must drink over it. The cowpuncher unburdened himself to the governor, and the governor filled up his friend's glass with the eastern whiskey, and nodded his spectacles, and listened, and advised, and said he should have done the same, and, like the good governor that he was, never remembered he was governor at all, with political friends here who had begged a word or two. He became just Dr. Barker again, the young hospital surgeon, the hospital that now stood a ruin, and Lynn was again his patient. Lynn, the sunburnt freelance of nineteen, reckless, engaging, disobedient, his leg broken and his heart light with no jessamine or conscience to rob his salt of its savor. While he now told his troubles, the quadrilles fiddled away careless as ever, and the crack of the billiard-ball sounded as of old. "'Nobody has told you about this, I expect,' said the lover. He brought forth the little pistol, neighbor. He did not hand it across to Barker, but walked over to Barker's chair and stood holding it for the doctor to see. When Barker reached for it to see better, since it was half hidden in the cowpuncher's big hand, Lynn yielded it to him, but still stood, and soon drew it back. I take it around, he said, and when one of those stories comes along, like there's plenty of, that she wants to get rid of me, I just kind of take a look at neighbor, when I'm off where it's handy, and it busts the story right out of my mind. I have to tell you what a fool I am. The whiskey's your side, said Barker. Go on. But, Doc, my courage has quit me. They see what I'm thinking about, just like I was a tenderfoot trying his first bluff. I can't stick it out no more, and I'm going to see her, come what will. 
I've got to. I'm going to ride right up to her window and shoot off neighbor, and if she don't come out I'll know—' A knocking came at the governor's room, and Judge Slaghammer entered. "'Not been to our dance, governor?' said he. The governor thought that perhaps he was tired, that perhaps this evening he must forego the pleasure. "'It may be wiser. In your position it may be advisable,' said the coroner. "'They're getting on rollers over there. They do not like trouble in Drybone, but trouble comes to us, as everywhere.' "'Shooting,' suggested His Excellency, recalling his hospital practice. "'Well, Governor, you know how it is. Our boys are as big-hearted as any in this big-hearted western country.' You know, Governor, those generous, warm-blooded spirits are ever ready for anything. Especially after Mrs. Slaghammer's whiskey, remarked the Governor. The coroner shot a shrewd eye at Wyoming's chief executive. It was not politically harmonious to be reminded that, but for his wife's liquor, a number of fine young men, with nothing save youth untrained and health the matter with them, would to-day be riding their horses instead of sleeping on the hill. But the coroner wanted support in the next campaign. Well, boys will be boys, said he. They ain't pulled any guns to-night. But I come away, though. Some of them's making up pretty free to Mrs. Lusk. It ain't suitable for me to see too much. Lusk says he's after you, he mentioned incidentally to Lynn. He's fillin' up and says he's after you. McLean nodded placidly, and with scant politeness. He wished his visitor would go, but Judge Slaghammer had noticed the whiskey. He filled himself a glass. "'Governor, it has my compliments,' said he. "'Ambrosier! Honey-dew!' "'Mrs. Slaghammer seems to have a large gathering,' said Barker. "'Good boys! Good boys!' The judge blew importantly and waved his arm. Bullwhackers, cowpunchers, mule-skinners, tin-horns, all spending generous. Governor, once more, ambrosier, honeydew. He settled himself deep in a chair and closed his eyes. McLean rose abruptly. Good night, said he. I'm going to Separ. Separ, exclaimed Slaghammer, rousing slightly. Oh, stay with us, stay with us. He closed his eyes again, but sustained his smile of office. "'You know how well I wish you,' said Barker to Lynn. "'I'll just see you start.' Forthwith the friends left the coroner quiet beside his glass, and walked toward the horses through Drybone's gaping quadrangle. The dead ruins loomed among the lights of the card-halls, and always the keen jockey cadences of the fiddle sang across the night but a calling and confusion were set up, and the tune broke off. "'Just like old times,' said His Excellency. "'Where's the dump-pile?' It was where it should be, close by, and the two stepped behind it to be screened from wandering bullets. "'A man don't forget his habits,' declared the Governor. "'Makes me feel young again.' "'Makes me feel old,' said McLean. "'Hark!' "'Sounds like my name,' said Barker. They listened. "'Oh, yes, of course, that's it. They're shouting for the doctor. But we'll just spare them a minute or so to finish their excitement.' "'I didn't hear any shooting,' said McLean. 
It's something, though." As they waited, no shots came, but still the fiddle was silent, and the murmur of many voices grew in the dance-hall, while single voices wandered outside, calling the doctor's name. "'I'm the governor on a fishing trip,' said he. But it's to be done, I suppose." They left their dump-hill and proceeded over to the dance. The musician sat high and solitary upon two starch-boxes, fiddle on knee, staring and waiting. Half the floor was bare. On the other half the revellers were densely clotted. At the crowd's outer rim the young horsemen, flushed and swaying, retained their gaudy dance-partner strongly by the waist, to be ready when the music should resume. "'What is it?' they asked. "'Who is it?' And they looked in across heads and shoulders, inattentive to the caresses which the partners gave them. Mrs. Lusk was who it was, and she had taken poison here in their midst, after many dances and drinks. "'Here's Doc!' cried an older one. "'Here's Doc!' chorused the young blood that had come into this country since his day and the throng caught up the words, Here's Doc! Here's Doc! In a moment McLean and Barker were sundered from each other in this flood. Barker, sucked in toward the center but often eddied back by those who meant to help him, heard the mixed explanations pass his ear unfinished, versions, contradictions, a score of facts. It had been wolf-poison. It had been rough on rats. It had been something in a bottle. There was little steering in this clamorous sea, but Barker reached his patient, where she sat in her new dress, hailing him with wild inebriate gaiety. "'I must get her to her room, friends,' said he. "'He must get her to her room,' went the word. "'Leave Doc. Get her to her room.' And they tangled in their eagerness around him and his patient. "'Give us buffalo girls,' shouted Mrs. Lusk. "'Buffalo girls, you fiddler!' "'We'll come back,' said Barker to her. "'Buffalo girls, I tell yous. Oh, there's no sense looking at that bottle, Doc. Take your dance while there's time.' She was holding the chair. "'Help him,' said the crowd. "'Help Doc.' They took her from her chair, and she fought, a big pink mass of ribbons, fluttering and wrenching itself among them. "'She has six ounces of laudanum in her,' Barker told them at the top of his voice. It won't wait all night. I'm a whirlwind, said Mrs. Lusk. That's my game. And you done your share, she cried to the fiddler. Here's my regards, old man. Buffalo girls, once more. She flung out her hand, and from it fell notes and coins, rolling and ringing around the starch-boxes. Some dragged her on, while some fiercely forbade the musician to touch the money, because it was hers, and she would want it when she came to. Thus they gathered it up for her. But now she had sunk down, asking in a new voice where was Lynn McLean, and when one grinning intimate reminded her that Lusk had gone to shoot him, she laughed out richly, and the crowd joined her mirth. But even in the midst of the joke she asked again in the same voice where was Lynn McLean. He came beside her among more jokes. He had kept himself near and now, at sight of him, she reached out and held him. "'Tell them to leave me go to sleep, Lynn,' said she. Barker saw a chance. "'Persuade her to come along,' said he to McLean. 
Minutes are counting now. Oh, I'll come, she said, with a laugh, overhearing him and holding still to Lynn. The rest of the old friends nudged each other. Back seats for us, they said. But we've had our turn in front ones. Then, thinking they would be useful in encouraging her to walk, they clustered again, rendering Barker and McLean once more well-nigh helpless. Clumsily the escort made its slow way across the quadrangle, cautioning itself about stones and holes. Thus, presently, she was brought into the room. The escort set her down, crowding the little place as thick as it would hold. The rest gathered thick at the door, and all of them had no thought of departing. The notion to stay was plain on their faces. Barker surveyed them. "'Give the doctor a show now, boy,' said he. "'You've done it all so far. Don't crowd my elbows. I want you,' he whispered to McLean. At the argument of fair play, obedience swept over them like a veering of wind. "'Don't crowd his elbows,' they began to say at once, and told each other to come away. "'We'll sure give the doc room. You don't want to be shoving your auger in, Chalkeye. You want to get yourself pretty near absent.' The room thinned of them forthwith. "'Fix her up good, doc,' they said over their shoulders. They shuffled across the threshold and porch with roundabout schemes to tread quietly. When one or other stumbled on the steps and fell, he was jerked to his feet. "'You want to tame yourself,' was the word. Then suddenly Chalkeye and Toothpick Kid came precipitately back. "'Her cash,' they said, and, leaving the notes and coins, they hastened to catch their comrades on the way back to the dance. "'I want you.' repeated Barker to McLean. "'Him!' cried Mrs. Lusk, flashing alert again. "'Jessamine wants him about now, I guess. Don't keep him from his girl.' And she laughed her hard, rich laugh, looking from one to the other. Ah, "'The two of yous can't save me,' she stated defiantly. But even in these last words a sort of thickness sounded. "'Walk her up and down,' said Barker. "'Keep her moving.' I'll look what I can find. Keep her moving brisk." At once he was out of the door, and before his running steps had died away, the fiddle had taken up its tune across the quadrangle. "'Buffalo girls!' exclaimed the woman. "'Old times! Old times!' "'Come,' said McLean. "'Walk!' And he took her. Her head was full of the music. Forgetting all but that, she went with him easily and the two made their first turns around the room. Whenever he brought her near the entrance, she leaned away from him toward the open door, where the old fiddle-tune was coming in from the dark, but presently she noticed that she was being led, and her face turned sullen. "'Walk,' said McLean. "'Do you think so?' said she, laughing, but she found that she must go with him. Thus they took a few more turns. "'You're hurting me,' she said next. Then a look of drowsy cunning filled her eyes, and she fixed them upon McLean's dogged face. "'He's gone, Lynn,' she murmured, raising her hand where Barker had disappeared. She knew McLean had heard her, and she held back on the quickened pace that he had set. "'Leave me down. You hurt,' she pleaded, hanging on him. The cowpuncher put forth more strength. Just the floor, she pleaded again. Just one minute on the floor. He'll think you could not keep me lifted. 
Still McLean made no answer, but steadily led her round and round, as he had undertaken. "'He's playing out!' she exclaimed. "'You'll be played out soon!' She laughed herself half awake. The man drew a breath, and she laughed more to feel his hand and arm strain to surmount her increasing resistance. "'Jessamine!' she whispered to him. "'Jessamine! Doc'll never suspicion you, Lynn!' "'Talk sense,' said he. "'It's sense I am talking. Leave me to go to sleep.' "'Ah, I'm going. I'll go. You can't.' "'Walk, walk,' he repeated. He looked at the door. An ache was numbing his arms. "'Oh, yes, walk. What can you and all your muscle? Ah, walk me to glory, then. Craziness. I'm going. I'll go.' I'm quitting this outfit for keeps. Lynn, you're awful handsome tonight. I'll bet, I'll bet she has never seen you look so. Let me, let me watch us. Anyway, she knows I came first. He grasped her savagely. First, you and twenty of you don't. God, what do I talk to her for? Because, because I'm going. I'll go. He slung me off but he had to sling. You can't stop." Her head was rolling while the lips smiled. Her words came through deeper and deeper veils, fearless, defiant, a challenge inarticulate, a continuous mutter. Again he looked at the door as he struggled to move with her dragging weight. The drops rolled on his forehead and neck, his shirt was wet, his hands slipped upon her ribbons. Suddenly the drugged body folded and sank with him, pulling him to his knees. While he took breath so, the mutter went on, and through the door came the jigging fiddle. A fire of desperation lighted in his eyes. "'Buffalo girls!' he shouted, hoarsely in her ear, and got once more on his feet with her as though they were two partners in a quadrille. Still shouting her to wake, he struck a tottering sort of step, and with the bending load in his grip, strove feebly to dance the laudanum away. Feet stumbled across the porch, and Lusk was in the room. "'So, I've got you,' he said. He had no weapon, but made a dive under the bed and came up with a carbine. The two men locked, wrenching impotently, and fell together. The carbine's loud shot rang in the room, but did no harm, and McLean lay sick and panting upon Lusk as Barker rushed in. "'Thank God!' said he, and flung Lusk's pistol down. The man, deranged and encouraged by drink, had come across the doctor, delayed him, threatened him with his pistol, and, when he had torn it away, had left him suddenly and vanished. But Barker had feared, and come after him here. He glanced at the woman slumbering motionless beside the two men. The husband's brief courage had gone, and he lay beneath McLean, who himself could not rise. Barker pulled them apart. "'Lynn, boy, you're not hurt?' he asked affectionately, and lifted the cowpuncher. McLean sat passive, with dazed eyes, letting himself be supported. "'You're not hurt?' repeated Barker. "'No,' answered the cowpuncher slowly. 
I guess not. He looked about the room and at the door. I got interrupted, he said. You'll be all right soon, said Barker. Nobody cares for me, cried Lusk suddenly, and took to querulous weeping. Get up, ordered Barker sternly. Don't accuse me, Governor, screamed Lusk. I'm innocent. And he rose. Barker looked at the woman and then at the husband. I'll not say there was much chance for her, he said, but any she had is gone through you. She'll die. Nobody cares for me, repeated the man. He has learned my boy to scorn me. He ran out aimlessly and away into the night, leaving peace in the room. Stay sitting, said Barker to McLean, and went to Mrs. Lusk. But the cowpuncher, seeing him begin to lift her toward the bed without help, tried to rise. His strength was not sufficiently come back, and he sank as he had been. I guess I don't amount to much, said he. I feel like I was nothing. Well, I'm something, said Barker, coming back to his friend, out of breath, and I know what she weighs. He stared admiringly through his spectacles at the seated man. The cowpuncher's eyes slowly traveled over his body, and then sought Barker's face. Doc, said he, ain't I young to have my nerve quit me this way? His Excellency broke into a broad smile. I know I've racketed some, but ain't it rather early? pursued McLean wistfully. You six-foot infant, said Barker. Look at your hand. Lynn stared at it, the fingers quivering and bloody, and the skin grooved raw between them. That was the buckle of her belt, which in the struggle had worked round and been held by him unknowingly. Both his wrists and his shirt were ribbed with the pink of her sashes. He looked over at the bed where lay the woman heavily breathing. It was a something, a, a sound, not like the breath of life, and Barker saw the cowpuncher shudder. She is strong, he said. Her system will fight to the end. Two hours yet, maybe. Queer world, he moralized people half-killing themselves to keep one in it who wanted to go, and one that nobody wanted to stay. McLean did not hear. He was musing, his eyes fixed absently in front of him. I would not want, he said with hesitating utterance, I'd not wish for even my enemy to have a thing like what I've had to do tonight. Barker touched him on the arm. If there had been another man I could trust—' "'Trust!' broke in the cowpuncher. "'Why, Doc, it is the best turn you ever done me. I know I am a man now, if my nerve ain't gone.' "'I've known you were a man since I knew you,' said the hearty governor, and he helped the still unsteady six-foot to a chair. "'As for your nerve, I'll bring you some whiskey now, and after—he glanced at the bed— and to-morrow you'll go try if Miss Jessamine won't put the nerve. Yes, Doc, I'll go there, I know. But don't you—don't let's while she's—I'm going to be glad about this, Doc, after a while, but— At the sight of a newcomer in the door, he stopped in what his soul was stammering to say. What do you want, Judge? he inquired coldly. 
"'I understand,' began Slaghammer to Barker. "'I, I am informed—' "'Speak quieter, Judge,' said the cowpuncher. "'I understand,' repeated Slaghammer, more official than ever, "'that there was a case for the coroner.' "'You'll be notified,' put in McLean again. "'Meanwhile, you'll talk quiet in this room.' Slaghammer turned and saw the breathing mass on the bed. "'You are a little early, Judge,' said Barker, "'but—' "'But your ten dollars are safe,' said McLean. End of Chapter 6, Part 3, Section 1